If you've got your Bible, I know many of you do. There's one close by you, hopefully. Turn to Daniel chapter 5, please. As we're marching our way through the book of Daniel, we're here in chapter 5 today. This, I believe, is sermon number 8 on the book of Daniel, and we're in chapter 5. For many generations here in America, the Bible was used as a textbook in school. Uh, Thousands of American children in the 1800s and early 1900s learned to read by using the old King James Version as one of their reading textbooks. The King James Version has been around for over 400 years in various editions and updates and still one of the top-selling Bibles in America. Uh, The Bible as a school textbook has been long gone now for 80 years or so, but there are still many, many expressions that we use in English conversation that came right out of the old venerable KJV. You've heard the phrase, bite the dust, or bit the dust, or lick the dust. That's from Psalm 72. The blind leading the blind, Matthew 15. By the skin of your teeth, from Job 19. The very concept of a broken heart came from Psalm 34. You've heard the phrase, can a leopard change his spots? That's from Jeremiah 13. You certainly don't want to be the, the person to cast the first stone. That's from John chapter 8. A drop in a bucket. That's from Isaiah chapter 40. Eat, drink, and be merry. From Ecclesiastes chapter 8. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. From Matthew 5. You've heard of someone, maybe they've fallen from grace. It's a phrase from Galatians 5. You're not sure what's wrong, but there seems to be a fly in the ointment. That's from Ecclesiastes 10. For everything there is a season. Use that phrase many people do from Ecclesiastes 3. In fact, some of you oldsters remember that song back in the 60s by the birds, turn, 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 came right out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The concept of forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. Going the extra mile, Matthew 5. Being a good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Matthew 26, that's one I quote to Nathan, our son, from time to time when he decides he wants to punch me. (laughs) Watch out, bud, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Uh, he, He knows the verse, he quotes it to me now. Matthew 26. And then, uh, how the mighty have fallen. We apply that one to politicians sometimes when they have a major crash. That's a quote from Second Samuel 1. We often flip the lights on in the room. Let there be light. Of course, that's Genesis 1, the creation account. The love of money is the root of all evil. Although most people misquote that, they say money is the root of all evil. The verse actually in First Timothy 6 says, the love of money is the root of all evil. You've heard of somebody saying, that guy's nothing but skin and bones. That's from Job 19. We, uh, we talk about, uh, we, when we talk about government sometimes, we talk about the powers that be. Quote from uh, Romans chapter 13. Pride goes before destruction. Proverbs 16. This is one I wasn't real familiar with. Putting words in someone's mouth. That's a quote straight out of 2 Samuel 14. You get up in the morning and say, rise and shine. That's uh, Isaiah 60, verse 1. The root of the matter, Job 19. The concept of the scapegoat, Leviticus 16. Seeing eye to eye with someone, that's from Isaiah 52. A sign of the times in Matthew 16. 
Persons walking the, the straight and narrow, that straight and narrow phrase from Matthew 7. In the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes 1. Uh, you you want to wash your hands of the matter, Matthew 27. This is one I wasn't familiar with. You ever feel like you're at wit's end? Psalm 107, verse 27. Came right out of the old King James Version. A wolf in sheep's clothing, Matthew chapter 7. Then we could go on and on and on with get your feet wet, a cross to bear, a labor of love, you reap what you sow. All of those phrases right out of the Bible that we still use in our English, modern English today. But in our text today here in, in Daniel chapter 5, we see a very, very popular idiom. Uh, the handwriting is on the wall. People have said, now a popular idiom for something bad is about to happen. That came, that phrase came right out of the book of Daniel in chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall. And here in Daniel chapter 5, there is something catastrophic that's about to happen. There's about 25 to 27 years that have passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. But between our great passage we looked at, Nebuchadnezzar's final proclamation, between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we've got 25, 26, 27 years have passed. Nebuchadnezzar has now died after a 43-year reign as the king of Babylon. His son becomes king only to be assassinated by his brother-in-law two years later. After four years on the throne, the backstabbing brother-in-law gets killed in battle, leaving his very young son as king. And within one year, the little boy king was deposed or removed from his position in a conspiracy by a group of priests, uh, not priests of the Lord, priests of Belmarduk, the Babylonian god. And in his very first year as the, as the boy king, he gets deposed. And one, one of Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-laws who was part of this priestly conspiracy, actually becomes the king. His name was Nabonidus, and he had a son named Belshazzar. Nabonidus didn't like all of the administrative issues of being king, so he began to travel around the empire and rebuild temples to his gods, and he put his son Belshazzar in charge of overseeing the city of Babylon and the administrative affairs of the kingdom. And all of this political intrigue and all these shifts in ruling power all happened in the first seven or eight years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. <laughs> Secular history records Belshazzar as a horrible, horrible ruler, a spoiled, arrogant rascal who loved to party, which we will see in our text. And when Nebuchadnezzar died and his son was assassinated two years later, the backstabbing brother-in-law that we spoke of a moment ago had, had removed from all of their positions all of Nebuchadnezzar's administrators. So after 40 years of service to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, probably now in his early 60s, was forced into retirement, you might say, and, and he would not have been an active part of Babylonian government for about 15 years. We know from the history of the time uh, that the year is now 539 B.C. In fact, secular history, interesting, I didn't plan it this way, but secular history places this night that we're going to read about in, in Daniel 5, according to our calendar, as October 11th or 12th. Today, of course, is October the 10th, and, uh, and this, this event actually happened on either October 11th or 12th, only in 539 B.C., 
In Nebuchadnezzar's dream that we read about back in chapter 2, the times of the Gentiles were about to move from the head of gold down to the chest and arms of silver. The armies of the Medes and the Persians were on the move. They had surrounded the city of Babylon, but they were not sure what to do next since Babylon had massive walls, very thick, very high, and the Euphrates River flowed under the walls through the city. So Babylon had food provisions for several years along with this unlimited supply of water so they could last for a long time blockaded into their city. And Belshazzar decides he's going to throw this big drinking party for a thousand of his fellow politicians. He's not worried about anything. The Medes and the Persians can't knock the walls down. They can't starve them out. All is well. He just wants to boost morale. So he calls for a party. In fact, historians tell us that the whole city was having this gigantic festival to honor all of the gods of Babylon. Let's read the first few verses here of Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. You know, in the ancient world, it was very, very unusual for a king to drink wine with his nobleman, with his lord, with his fellow leaders. It was considered to be foolish. He might say something he might later regret. He might do something or give an order or set a policy that he might regret later. So a king never drank publicly with his nobleman. It was also very unusual for him to invite women to this sort of gathering unless the purpose of the gathering was sensual or sexual. So, so this is not an official gathering of political leaders to discuss kingdom business or a strategy regarding the enemy that, that was all of the enemy armies that were camped outside of the city. This was a drunken, womanizing party, and Belshazzar had the gall to order that the cups and the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem be brought in to drink from in this drunken, sensual party. It was a slap in the face of the God of heaven to use these holy, sacred items in this way. Let's read on. Verse 5. In the same hour. The fingers of a man's hand, this is interesting, the, and within an hour of them bringing in those vessels from the, from the, from the Old Testament temple there in Jerusalem, within an hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed. The Hebrew text there basically means he lost all his color. And his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Remember, Belshazzar was the second ruler in the kingdom. His father, Nabonidus, 
Excuse me. His father, Nabonidus, was, was the king. He was just overseeing Babylon. So he said, I'll make him the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his, and his lords were astonished. Picture this image in your mind, if you would. No electric lights, just candles and oil lamps. Over a thousand people, the lords, the women, the slaves delivering food and wine, over a thousand people drinking and laughing and carousing in this huge room that's just lit by candlelight. And suddenly, behind one of the oil lampstands, this hand appears on the wall, writing on the wall. No body, no ghost, no apparition or something, just a real hand writing on the wall. And then the hand disappears and the writing remains. Belshazzar's countenance, meaning his color changes, his legs get weak, his knees knock together. He shouts with all the strength, get the wise men of Babylon and tell me what this means. You know, we often hear folks about, to talk about getting spooked. They've had some unnerving paranormal experience. Well, I'll tell you, Belshazzar got spooked on steroids. He is shaking so badly he can't stand up. And in verses 10 to 12, the queen says, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. She wasn't there in this big drunken party. The queen spoke saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And the days of your father, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas. That's an interesting English translation for a literal Aramaic phrase that means untying knots. They were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Now this queen was not Belshazzar's wife. His wives and concubines were drinking with him in the banquet hall. And in case you're unfamiliar with the term concubine, most of you may be in the ancient world. They were kind of a second category of wife. They had no legal rights as a spouse, but they were in the king's harem for sexual reasons and were often bought as a slave might be bought. Very common in the ancient world. But they were all, they were all with him in the hall. So this queen they're speaking of here was quite possibly Nebuchadnezzar's widow. He's been gone about 25 years or so. Quite possibly his widow, or perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, maybe the wife of Nabonidus. Uh, thus we would think of her in modern terms as the queen mother. Now there's no specific term in ancient Aramaic for grandfather, so father is just used to indicate a male ancestor. So when she talks about your father the king, not necessarily Nabonidus, she's referring to probably his grandfather, Belshazzar, who was Nebuchadnezzar. So Belshazzar is probably Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And so the queen mother, either Nebuchadnezzar's widow or maybe Nabonidus' wife, comes and she knows about Daniel. And I thought it was very interesting that even though Daniel has been out of government position, 
for at least 15 years, his testimony remains. And when this tremendous crisis comes, when this terrifying experience comes, and everybody's going nuts trying to figure out what's going on, the queen mother comes in and says, you know what you need to do? You need to call Daniel. I know of Daniel. And I thought it's interesting that she used, she described him exactly the same way that Nebuchadnezzar had described him in chapter 4. He has got the spirit of the holy God in him. And he said he was, he was, has an excellent spirit. He has understanding. He can interpret dreams. He can solve riddles. He can untie knots. You need to find this Daniel. Your grandfather called him Belteshazzar, but you go get him. He can fix this problem for you. You never know how far your testimony is going to go. You never know how long people are going to remember your testimony for Christ. Daniel's been gone from the scene in retirement, so to speak, for at least 15 years, if not more. And yet when everything starts coming unglued and nobody can figure out what to do, they say, call Daniel. Great testimony. So Daniel's called. And look what he says in verse 13. Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Remember, Daniel's probably in his early 60s. All this event took place 60, 70 years ago. Are you one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Remember, you can untie knots. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom, and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up, and whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, which we saw that last week, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. That's a key phrase. You have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. 
Then the fingers of your hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And the inscription that was written, Mine, Mine, Tikel, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mine, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tikel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is the singular form of Eupharsin there in verse 25. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. They clothed Daniel with purple and put a gold of chain around his neck and made a proclamation to him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Daniel, now probably in his late 70s or early 80s, he walks into the middle of this drunken, sensual party. He stands before this ungodly, arrogant king, and he preaches what I call to he preaches to him a little ten-minute sermon, denouncing his sin, announcing God's judgment, and pronouncing Belshazzar's doom. You know, you may be familiar with the Latin term quid pro quo, meaning something for something. People use it a lot when they talk about politicians. You do this for me and I'll do this for you. You vote for my bill and I'll vote for yours. You get me into this special insider's meeting and I'll make sure you get this contract. That's a quid pro quo. That's basically what Belshazzar is doing. He's trying to negotiate a deal the only way that he knows how, with possessions and power and position. And you know, that that's always been the way of the world. They deal in the only commodity that they have. Possessions, power, and position. I want you to do this for me. I'll do this for you. So I'll make this deal with you. I'll give you possessions. I'll give you power. I'll give you a position. But Daniel deals in God's truth. So he tells Belshazzar, you can keep your possessions. You can keep your power. You can keep your position. But I'll interpret the writing anyway. And Daniel confronts Belshazzar with, with his, his arrogance, his idolatry, his blasphemy against God, his rebellion against the Lord of heaven. I thought, you know, for a little five or ten minute sermon, he really lowered the boom on him. He said, you have not humbled your heart, Belshazzar, even though you knew what God did to your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. And I love the phrase there, and, and I want to hammer this home with you there at, in verse 20, at the end of verse 23. The God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. That's a, great, that's a great line for us to comprehend. That's a great line for us to remember. God holds our breath in His hand. God owns all our ways. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, and you have not glorified Him. As I was reading, I said, boy, that's, that's good preaching, Daniel. <laughs> that's really good. You know, you stand before this vile, ungodly king who's, who's guilty of idolatry and blaspheming God and rebellion against God and, 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 and just this arrogant, filled with pride. In fact, he talked about Nebuchadnezzar being hardened with pride. Wow. And Daniel looks at him and says, hey, God holds your breath in his hand. God owns all your ways, and you have not glorified Him. You know, pride does strange things to us. Pride makes us think we're untouchable. 
Pride makes us think we have an excuse for everything that we do. Pride keeps us from following the Lord. Pride, pride keeps us from witnessing to people. We're afraid of what everybody's going to think of us. You could go on and on and on and on and on with thousands of things that pride does to us. And in this case, with Belshazzar, he knew what God had done to Nebuchadnezzar. He, he, I'm sure he read Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation that we studied last week in chapter 4. He probably grew up knowing that it was there. And Daniel says to him, you knew all of this. You knew what God expected. You knew what God could do, and yet you still hardened your heart. And before we think terribly about Belshazzar, I think uh, we should probably ask ourselves how many times... Do we know exactly what God wants us to do? We just don't do it. How many times do we look at our past and we see what God has done and we see how God has blessed and how God has directed and, and, and all these things that God has done for us and, and we know what God wants us to do with His blessings that He gives us, but we don't do it. So Daniel looks at Belshazzar and says, You knew all this, but you still... We're lifted up in pride. Every morning when I get up, in fact, I thought of it this morning when I get up. I want every morning when I get up to tell myself, and every night before I go to bed, I want to tell myself, God holds my breath in His hands. And He owns all my ways. So am I going to glorify Him today? Great question for us. Great challenge for us. The only reason I'm standing here today and the only reason why you're sitting here today is because, is because God has allowed you to live another day. God has allowed me to live another day. God holds my breath in His hands. And if He wants to turn it off, He can do that anytime He wants. He owns all of our ways. And we need to be glorifying Him. Then let's look at the words on the wall. Three words in Aramaic. Two of them are repeated for emphasis. The words were monetary terms, they're money terms for, for measuring quantities or making sales or trades. The words in, in English would be numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. That mine, mine, tikel, euphorson, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. And Daniel says the interpretation is God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And unbeknownst to the people of Babylon, the armies of the Medes and the Persians who'd been surrounding the city, for the last several weeks they'd been busy digging a canal outside of the city to divert water from the river. They knew they couldn't scale the walls. They knew they couldn't knock the walls down. They knew they couldn't break the gates in. And so the general of the, of, the, of the armies of the Medes and the Persians said, let's dig a canal and we'll divert parts of the river. And they waited until late in the night after the canal was done, when the citywide party was in full swing, according to Herodotus, the Greek historian who tells this story. And, and the armies of the Medes and the Persians opened the gates of the canal and the water was diverted and the water level began to go down until it was about two feet deep. And the armies of the Medes and Persians walked into the city right under the city wall in the riverbed. And within a few hours, the Medes and the Persians were in control of the entire city. Belshazzar was dead. Nabonidus was later captured and exiled. 
The Babylonian Empire was now history, and Daniel lived through it all and witnessed it. Do you know that 70 years before this happened, God foretold all of this through the prophet Jeremiah? We won't read all the passages. You can look at them sometime if you like. But in Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah, by the way, was carried off to Babylon. He was older than Daniel, but Daniel, I'm sure, knew who Jeremiah was. Jeremiah was a prophet for many years before Daniel was born. But when they carried away people to, in, into Babylon, not only did Daniel go, but so did Jeremiah. And we'll see Daniel even mention the writing of Jeremiah a little bit later on in the book. But 70 years before all this happened, God foretold through the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 27, he said Babylon would fall in the days of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Here we are. God said in Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51, he said that a a nation north of Babylon would conquer them. The Medes and the Persians are north of them. And And he actually even mentions the Medes, that the conquerors would be connected to the Medes. Jeremiah 50. He said, God said Babylon's walls would not protect her. And in a very interesting phrase there in chapter 51 of Jeremiah, it says that Babylon's fall would be connected to the drying up of some water. And he also said in chapter 51 that this fall of Babylon was going to happen during a drunken feast. Seventy years before it happened. God told, gave these clues to Jeremiah as to what was going to happen to, to Babylon. And of course, at the time Jeremiah, Jeremiah wrote those, Babylon was this world-conquering empire. Nobody could even begin to stand before Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. But God said, well, hang on, because in the days of his grandson, Babylon's going to fall. A nation north of them is going to conquer them. They're going to be connected to the Medes. The walls won't be able to, to, to protect her. They're going to dry up some water right in the middle of a drunken feast and the city's going to fall. So how does God know that? Well, of course, you know how God knows that. God is eternal. God knows the future because he plans the future. And he has the power and the sovereignty to actually make it happen. Last week, I closed by reading a portion of Isaiah 40. And I'd like to read another portion of Isaiah 40 with you today, if you will turn there as we wind up our thoughts. Isaiah chapter 40. If you really feel like as you trudge through this sin-cursed world and all the troubles and issues of life, if you really need to feel some great encouragement and security in the Lord, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 40 every single week. Just read it over and over and over and over again. It's a great passage of Scripture. Just remind you who's actually in control of this world. Because when we look around us in this world today, sometimes we wonder who in the world is in control of this. Doesn't seem like anybody in politics is in control of it. Well, we know who's in control of it. God is in control of it. And I want to read a section. I think I quoted the the last uh, several verses to you last week. I want to read starting in verse 15 of chapter chapter 40 of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 verse 15 is where we'll start. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, and nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. The mountains of Lebanon had massive, massive cedar trees. 
And uh, what, what Isaiah is saying, you'd cut down every cedar tree in the mountains of, 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 of Lebanon and kill every animal in the forest. And it's not enough for a burnt offering. Now, all the nations before him are as nothing. They are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom will, then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot and seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing and makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. God is on His throne. God is in control. The nations of the earth are like dust on a scale. They're like a drop in a bucket. God rules this universe. And in our day-to-day existence, even when it seems as though evil is winning, God is in control. And in our sensual, provocative, unholy, rebellious world, the banquet halls of Belshazzar are alive and well. But may God help us to be like Daniel, wise and courageous with this enduring testimony. Our God is like no other God. He holds our breath in His hands. He owns all of our ways. And may we give Him glory in everything that we do. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for having too small a view of who you are. Lord, forgive us for not remembering who's really in control of all of this. Lord, may we remember that pride does go before destruction whether it's Belshazzar's or Nebuchadnezzar's or or mine. Lord, help us to give you glory in every area of life, to thank you for every day of life. May we, Lord, remember who we belong to. If we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, Lord, may we remember who we belong to. And I pray, Lord, that you will use us To be a light, just as Daniel was. What a dark, dark society he lived in. A society filled with idolatry, and filled with wickedness, and filled with blasphemy. And yet when the most traumatic circumstance someone could think of approached the king, they called for Daniel. Lord, I pray that we would have that kind of testimony. And Lord, as our world continues to spin out of control and as we move closer and closer to the, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we remember the Apostle Paul told us in the last days, evil men will grow worse and worse. 
And I pray, Father, that you would help us to stand firmly like Daniel did, with character and integrity and humility, and speak the truth for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we, Lord, remember every day of our lives that you hold our breath in your hands, and you own all our ways. So may we give you glory in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.